This is District Sentinel Radio, that loud newscast on the left. I'm Sam Sachs. I'm Sam Knight. We are broadcasting out of the intern. Nate is not a worker. Studios in Washington, D.C. Check out the website, districtsentinel.com. We're still out of town, folks. We're on vacation. We'll be back on August 27th. Between now and then, we're releasing Sentinel Cast interviews on our SoundCloud. Today, we take you back to an interview from earlier this month with Public Citizen's Lori Wallach. She's the Global Trade Watch Director at the organization, and she had some interesting insights about Trump's trade wars. Take a listen. The dynamic on NAFTA talks changed recently when the Mexican presidential election was won by Andres Manuel Luis Obrador, or AMLO. Uh, What has that meant for renegotiation talks? Well, the thing that's happened is that AMLO is not keen to basically be handed the hot potato of uh, partially cooked NAFTA. So now the incoming administration is as eager as the outgoing administration to have a deal completed so that the U.S. Congress can be given notice. And under U.S. procedures, the deal could have the time to be signed before the current president, Peña Nieto, leaves office, which is December 1st. And under U.S. rules, it's a 90-day notice of when a deal is done before it can be signed. So August 27th is now the drop-dead date if the outgoing president is to sign it. And that does seem to be the goal of both administrations. And as a result, talks have really heated up. And uh, what has that meant sort of on issue-specific things? Are we, are we seeing, I know a lot of trade talks happen behind closed doors and are secretive, but uh, are we getting wind of uh, how this is impacting the, the nitty-gritty details? Well, it seems that even several weeks before, perhaps as much as several months before the Mexican election, it was so apparent that AMLO was going to win that people who were representing his position in the NAFTA negotiations had started to sit in on the process. And as a result, the deal that is on the precipice, perhaps, of being completed already had some provisions that perhaps the previous administration wouldn't have been very excited about on its own. That includes some improvements in labor rights. And those go towards AMLO's goal of raising wages in Mexico. And the question now is, will those rights be enforceable? That's one of the last outstanding issues is how strong the enforceability will be. That That will pretty much determine who supports that agreement in the U.S., well, that's a little ironic because uh, enforceability, too much uh, sort of enforceability uh, on on behalf of capital and, and, and investment has been a deal in the past with the uh, investor state uh, dispute settlement tribunals where the, the sort of secret courts uh, where only investors can, can bring litigation. So I take it we're not going to see <laughs> any type of, it, uh, of tribunals where only where only unions can, can bring litigation. Well, here is, here, is the, here is where we get into Alice in Wonderland. The president himself, best anyone can tell, though it is true he has hated NAFTA since before there was a NAFTA, I don't know that he has any clue about what you would do to fix it. Uh, 
But he did pick to be his top trade ambassador, a guy named Robert Lighthizer, who is a guy who is really smart, who's been a critic of NAFTA forever, and who has worked with unions and the steel industry for 30 years, having to do with unfair trade practices. So this guy actually knows the things you'd have to change, and he understands the goal, the thing the president promised is, to fix the trade balance and bring back manufacturing jobs. Well, if you really want to do that, which ironically is what Democrats in Congress, progressives, what unions, what groups like ours, public citizens, have been stopped the outsourcing, the race to the bottom in wages. But there are only certain things you can do to achieve that. Number one, you have to take out those investor state tribunals because those actually act like a subsidy on offshoring. It basically makes it less risky and cheap investment and capital protection that make it easier to outsource. You have to get rid of the ban on buy local and buy American procurement, which has led to production of goods for the U.S. government to buy being outsourced. And ironically, you need to raise wages in Mexico, labor standards. And that is an agenda that this trade negotiator has been pursuing. And the Republicans in Congress are not one bit happy about it. And the Democrats in Congress are looking at this and saying, huh, this is what we've been talking about for 20 years. So what else is going to be in this agreement that's bad? Because these are the they're basically doing our agreement. <laughs> so it, what, what else is going to come in? It, it, it kind of seems like, and, and not to get sidetracked too much, but we, we saw a little bit of this dynamic vis-a-vis North Korea where Trump sort of accidentally stumbled into a pro-peace position because, the, because of work done by the South Korean president uh, setting up talks with uh, North Korea, which were unprecedented. And now it almost seems like Trump is stumbling into a good position once again uh, because of a leftist in Mexico, which is ironically helping his position, which, as you said, he doesn't really understand. But the outcome of all this could be could be good for workers on both sides of the U.S. and Mexico border. Yeah, I think it remains to be seen. There are a few last details we have to know about. But if ISDS is out, the buy local ban is out, enforceable labor standards are in. We know they've taken out this horrible environmental thing called the proportional sharing agreement that would have guaranteed the other countries. Each country has a guaranteed right to the other's natural resources, even if you start to conserve domestically. We know that's out. If that's what it plays out as, it's more or less what progressives and Democrats have been asking for. I mean, I suspect the Republicans in Congress will hate it and maybe try and blow it up. But it is... um, it could be, if that came to pass, it could be the only good thing that comes out of this entire administration. And it's, you know, it's a little bit like some strange unicorn has walked out of a very dark and evil forest. But let us bring it safely to our house and protect it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was going to get at what I was going to ask, Lori, is I, I used to work on the Tom Hartman program, and we used to have you on as a guest pretty often to talk about trade issues. That seems like so long ago now because we'd have you on talking about uh, how the country is getting devastated by our trade agreements and how neither party seems to care about that. And maybe the first party that starts talking about it would win some votes. Uh, Here we are with with Trump actually now, you know, 
threatening to get rid of NAFTA, redo NAFTA, and plus doing all this stuff beyond NAFTA when it comes to trade that has Republicans lighting their hair on fire. Putting aside all the bad stuff that has come with Trump, when it comes to trade itself, is there some value in what's been done over the last two years from where we were back in the days of the Obama administration when you'd come on and talk about these issues? Well, I certainly think there is some weird, like, only Nixon can go to China kind of phenomenon where this billionaire Republican is basically taking an axe to the entire structure of the status quo trade and globalization structure that the Republicans, but also the presidential wing of the Democrats, and a bipartisan troop of corporate lobbyists have constructed. And I wouldn't doubt that the president, Bernie Sanders, would be doing the same thing. But um, it is... It is, I think, for the sake of upending a very damaging, broken system, uh, a useful deconstruct, regardless of who does it. And the thing everyone now needs to watch is what comes in its place. So if we get the NAFTA replacement that I was describing with ISDS out and labor standards in, that would be a good development. That is not the vision you hear Trump talking about. He has a very isolationist, very, very nationalist vision that he talks about. But what actually is being negotiated is very similar to the actual changes you would need, which ironically have been demanded by congressional Democrats and progressives and and unions. So it could come to pass that you could see a, an improvement in the model of trade agreements, it certainly is not going to be the perfect, right? Because what we're dealing with now is basically trying to defang a rabid NAFTA that already has cost over $400 million in corporate payouts under investor state in attacks on toxics, bans, water policies, timber policies, land use policies, zoning policies. That needs to be shut down. We have seen 960,000 specific U.S. jobs certified by the government as lost to NAFTA, and more going every week. And, and high-end, high-skilled jobs, Boeing, GE, high-end manufacturing. So with NAFTA, part of what we're fighting for is a new kind of trade agreement, for sure. But part of what we're fighting for is stopping the ongoing damage. And if we are able to do that and create the beginnings of a new model, then if you had a more progressive president, please God, you could build from that and fill in the stuff that you just aren't going to get in this administration. So well, that's, the, like, that's how I would see this being a path to something good, which is hard to say given almost every path being paid by this administration leads directly to hell. <laughs> Uh, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on something real quick, Lori, that's kind of related to NAFTA, but not directly a result of NAFTA. And that is the, the $12 billion in assistance the Trump administration has proposed to farmers who might get hurt in this trade war with China and Europe. Uh, where do you, how do you see that sort of uh, assistance being wielded as the U.S. goes about redoing these trade deals and actually entering trade conflicts with other countries? 
I um, so the way I see the China enforce trade enforcement actions and the steel and aluminum trade enforcement actions is something like this, which is the way that they've gone about implementing it, the way they've sequenced opening a multi-front battle all at once, the chaos around what the president says in tweets, including like idiotic things like trade wars, fun and easy to win, as <laughs> if. That kind of stuff is super counterproductive. However, it is also the case that we've been in a trade war. And the main injured party has been working people in the U.S. And the, the corporations have done fine under the old system, but working people have been hemorrhaging. And so the notion that we would start to use some of the enforcement tools we have, were they used in a strategic and targeted way, I think is right and overdue. And I think part of the mission is to send the signal that business as usual is over, that we're not just going to become the dumping ground for all of the subsidized and unfairly produced and unfairly traded stuff that particularly China, but not exclusively, wants to send here. And that's been going on for a very long time. However, the when sometimes, as, as the president of the AFL-CIO said yesterday, sometimes when you take actions that are good for the country and that for the long term are going to be the right thing to have done, along the way, people are going to get hurt. And so there's a lot of focus right now about the retaliation. So as compared to hearing about the 3 million U.S manufacturing workers who have lost jobs to China or talking about the data that the Bureau of Labor Statistics at the Department of Labor has that shows that half of those manufacturing workers, if they get rehired in a new job, take a pay cut and a quarter of them take a pay cut of 20% of their salary instead of focusing on the wreckage that not trying to have a more pro-worker trade policy has created, all the focus and coverage is on the counter sanctions of countries that are upset about being in this fight. And in the middle of all of that, having, for instance, payments to farmers who are going to be injured is not something that I am upset about. However, it is supremely unfair that for these farmers, who, by the way, represent about $100 billion in U.S. exports as compared to over a trillion dollars in U.S. exports in the manufacturing sector, that they are getting a lot of special help, which I don't begrudge them. It's just unfair in the context of what about those manufacturing workers? What about that 58% of the American workforce in this year, 2018, that do not, who do not have college degrees and who, with a union manufacturing job, had a middle-class job, family-supporting job with benefits until we started outsourcing wide swaths of jobs that make things in no small part because of our current trade regime. Those folks have not gotten a bailout. They have not gotten special help. They have lost their houses. 
They have seen family members die of cancer because they couldn't afford the treatment. They have seen the future dreams for their kids and their families crushed. And so I would say that while we are helping farmers adjust to this necessary action for the long term, we really have failed as a country to think about the victims of 20 years of bad trade policy and the situation that they've been left in. So that even if we fix it now, how are we going to help those folks who've been suffering from these devastating corporate rig policies for all these years? There's a cruel irony that it's Trump who's uh, trying to renegotiate NAFTA because NAFTA has also been terrible for a lot of workers in Mexico, including a lot of farmers, and that has driven a large cohort of migration from Mexico to the United States since the 1990s. A lot of these people who uh, Trump brands as criminals and rapists are actually just people who are NAFTA victims, like people on this side of the border. Uh, so that's that's kind of a cruel irony there. Well, and in fact, I thought very spot on Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez sent out a, ta- uh, sorry, a tweet last week saying something along the lines of, when we do rigged corporate trade deals like NAFTA and CAFTA, we need to be ready to help the refugees these agreements create. Mm. To some degree, spot on connecting what you've just said, which is after NAFTA, the Mexican government said 2 million peasant farm families were displaced in the course of the first three years of NAFTA when corn started flooding, U.S. corn started flooding into Mexico. And the NAFTA required Mexico to change its, its, its revolutionary era constitutional rules of land reform so that for the first time ever, these small farmers could actually lose their land. Mm. So people didn't just lose their crop. They lost their land. They became homeless. In the first five years of NAFTA, migration from Mexico jumped 60%, 6-0. With CAFTA, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, as we flooded Central America with rice, chicken, and other products, we saw another wave of displaced farmers, just as Oxfam and other organizations, development groups had predicted. And then these are, as you said, the folks who President Trump is now criminalizing when, in fact, to some degree, they are the victims of our own U.S. trade policy and are, as we probably all would, looking for a way to survive after their livelihoods at home were destroyed. Yeah. Well, we are in a time of flux when it comes to trade policy. Much needed time of flux, but unfortunately, the person to guide us through isn't the most reliable figure. Lori Wallach, the director and founder of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. And for folks who want to stay in the details of the NAFTA fight and be on top of it, go to www.replacenafta.org. That's www.replacenafta.org. That's the Action Campaign Center. And you can get all kinds of details also on all the issues we talked about today. All right. Thank you, Lori. Thank you. That'll do it for the show. Remember, regular newscasts resume on August 27th. We'll be back in D.C. so you don't have to be.